This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to episode 10 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight and Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. Today is part one of book number two. And a reminder, book number two is Batman The Ultimate Evil by Andrew Vax. I mentioned several months back that my goal is to alternate novelizations with novels. Right now, this pertains to live-action movie novelizations. Another type of novelization we'll come across with Batman will be novelizations of graphic novels, of the video games, and some of the animated movies. My plan to keep things kind of mixed up is to do an alternating schedule of a live-action movie novelization, a standalone novel, which book number two is, and then do another novelization of something that's not a live-action movie. And you can send questions, suggestions, feedback to batmanbooks underscore DKP at Twitter or darknightprose at gmail.com. Remember, that's night with a K. So I have a couple of notes about book number one, the 1989 novelization of Batman, that I want to touch on before we leave book number one behind and move on to book number two. When the Batman universe posted episode eight on Twitter, John from the podcast team Married with Comics with John and Maggie, tweeted, I was completely and totally into the hype of this movie. I bought this book off a spinner rack at a drugstore the day before the movie came out in the neighboring town and read it twice before I saw the movie. I was also addicted to novelizations. I had to ask, I'm curious now, did you see the movie the day it came out? If so, I will be highly impressed that you read the novelization twice in one day. He replied, probably more like one and a half of it. This would not be an unusual task for 15-year-old me. I did little else between the time I bought it and the time I went to the movie the following evening. It became so ingrained in my head that for years, I Mandela affected my way into being absolutely certain I had seen These Flowers Are Dead, You Soon Will Be Too in the movie itself. One and a half times in one day is still highly impressive. And I adore that John used the Mandela effect as a verb. If you've not heard of the Mandela Effect, you should look it up. It's a little spooky. And if you've heard any of my podcast promotions that I play sometimes, either Monsters Among Us or Nocturnal Transmissions, I definitely have a side to me that likes the spooky. But yeah, Don and Maggie, thank you for the conversation we had on Twitter. That, that was quite amusing. So uh, since this is the first part of this book, I'm going to do a segment about the author. And in my show notes throughout the duration of this book, I'll have links back to the author's webpages. So about the author, 
Andrew Henry Vax, and thankfully he has a pronunciation guide for that last name of his, is an American crime fiction author, child protection consultant, and attorney exclusively representing children and youth. Uh, he was born October 19th, 1942. He grew up on the Lower West Side of Manhattan, and he's officially a badass. He worked in the Republic of <laughs> Biafra. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's, it was a short-lived country in Africa. But he entered the war zone just before the fall of the country, and he worked to find a land route to bring donated food and medical supplies across the border after seaports were blocked and Red Cross airlifts were banned by the Nigerian government. However, all attempts ultimately failed, resulting in rampant starvation. After Vax returned and recovered from his injuries, which included malaria and malnutrition, he continued his social work by studying community organizing, running a self-help center for urban migrants in Chicago, managing a re-entry program for ex-convicts in Massachusetts, and finally directing a maximum security prison for violent juvenile offenders. As an attorney, Vax represents only children and adolescents. In addition to his private practice, he serves as a law guardian in New York State. He has written 33 novels and three collections of short stories. He has also written poetry, plays, song lyrics, and graphic novels. Vax is also a passionate advocate against animal abuse, such as dogfighting, and against breed-specific legislative bans. When Vax was seven years old, an older boy swung a chain at his right eye. The resulting injuries damaged the eye muscles and resulted in his wearing an eye patch. According to Vax, removing it has the effect of a strobe light flashing in his face. I gotta say, I respect Vax immensely for the work he's done throughout his life. With his intense dedication to children, adolescents, animals, those members of society who are most at risk, it really doesn't surprise me that he chose Batman as an outlet for one of his novels. Um, I have a clip of him that I'd like to play. Andrew Vax is suggesting ways to rescue children from abuse, and I feel the topic of this interview relates very closely to the topic of Batman the Ultimate Evil. So here it is. Here's a question from Dominica from Buffalo. I want to get my hands dirty. How do I get into saving children from uh, trafficking and abuse? Well, trafficking is abuse. So, it, you know, it really depends on where you want to plant your feet. We don't have enough CPS, Child Protective Service caseworkers, in this country. You know why? Because we've made the profession so impassable. This is what you have to do if you're a Child Protective Services worker. You have to go places where no cop would go alone, unarmed, with no radio contact, knock on a door, not know what's inside. And when you get inside, you have the very simple task of protecting the child and rehabilitating the parents simultaneously. And for this, we'll give you a lot less money than we pay people who pick up garbage. If you want to actually step up to the front lines, there's a million ways to do it. Law enforcement does it, nurses do it, doctors do it, social workers do it. It's the choice that you make of how you're going to use the skills you've acquired. There's no one child protective job. There's a million of them. So you could pick your spot. If you want to do something about actual trafficking, you need to be an FBI agent. And the federal government's got to start funding the FBI to do something about this instead of funding these public service announcements. I don't know what else I could tell you about how to get into the game, because you'll find your own way. If you maintain anger, if you maintain enough 
genuine hatred of people who hurt children. You don't need empathy for the children who've been hurt. You understand? All you need to do is focus on your job to stand between those children and perpetrators. If you can do that, it really doesn't matter at all how you do it, in what form you do it, even, to be real, why you do it. If you do the right thing for the wrong reason, I don't care, and neither will the kids care. I don't know how many gazillion kids I've represented in my life. Not one kid has ever asked me why you're doing this. If somebody's drowning, you throw them a life raft, you don't have a motivational discussion with the person who grabs the life raft. He just grabs it. There's a million doors open to you if you want to do this. Pick one, take the course, do the training, pay what it costs, I mean, pay it in here, and then go fight. You can't lose because we're surrounded. I love hearing how he speaks with him being born and raised in Manhattan and being a lawyer. It sort of changes my headcanon of how Matt Murdock sounds in the courtroom when he's not being Daredevil. Can anyone else hear Matt Murdock saying, Well, you tell me. But yeah, Vex strikes me as someone who is zero nonsense, which is exactly the type of person you'd want defending children, adolescents, and animals, or trying to find a route for life-saving supplies to get into a devastated country. This is the writer behind book number two, and I gotta say I'm quite excited to dig into this book. So, uh, let's take a brief promo break, and when we come back, we'll get started. Stay tuned. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Oh, hey, I was looking at these old comics, and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly f*** up. <laughs> it goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey, to Phoenix, to Dead. Um, and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys <laughs> in the alleyway. A brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Oh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast, where two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. All right, welcome back. Uh, the unfortunate thing about this book is the chapters are not numbered. I did a quick count through. It looks like it has 20 chapters, so so more than likely every episode will cover two chapters at a time. 
best I can do then is just kind of give page numbers. I have the hardcover edition, but I don't know if that will differ or how much it will differ from the, the soft cover. Nothing else, just do the best you can. <laughs> All right. Okay, even before we get into chapter one, scene one, there's a, a little introduction that I want to read. If Paris is the city of light, what then is Gotham? From its downtown government center, where buildings crowd each other like subway passengers, to its midtown glitz of luxury hotels and four-star restaurants casually dispersed among ultra-ultra shops, to the uptown splendor of its high-rise co-ops and condos, Gotham stands as an international symbol of cosmopolitan success. Airline pilots love to bank low over the city before landing at Gotham Airport, treating the passengers avidly lining the windows to the magnificent skyline. Viewed from above, Gotham by night resembles nothing so much as a ribbon of diamonds artfully arranged on a pad of deep, rich black velvet. But closer to ground zero, the view changes. The black velvet has an illumination all its own. The cold garish neon of the sex industry. The feverish light in the dead eyes of desperate drug addicts. The inadequate streetlights creating pools of shadow in which muggers patiently wait. Deeper down in the crosstown depths of the city, the only light is artificial, as man-made, as evil itself. And the only language spoken is the unspeakable. Wow. 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 If that doesn't set up a tone of this story, I don't know what does. That first sentence, though, if Paris is the city of light, what then is Gotham? I love it. Let's start chapter one, scene one, and that's on page three. The mid-rise apartment complex stood proudly just inside the ribbon of light, two blocks over from the crosstown darkness. The two-block safety cushion was called Border Town by the good citizens who walked through it on their way to work every day, but the cops who patrolled it at night called it by another name, the DMZ. The developer of the complex had received a massive tax break from the city council in exchange for his pledge to create a highly prized area of urban green. Three of the apartment buildings were constructed at a slight angle to the street so that their intersection formed a triangle. The developer emphasized the triangle theme with a concrete walkway surrounding a patch of grass. The walkway was dotted with wrought iron benches. The developer himself is at a black tie event for one of his wife's pet charities. He kind of brags about how cheap the bottom line is in Gotham, and he speaks of the plaza with some disdain. A woman asks him, What do people use the plazas for? The developer replies, Damned if I know. There's a nice third-person omniscient bit here that takes us from this black tie party to one of the plazas. The developer's words joined the whisper stream that flowed throughout the city, blending with other voices, other words. We come to a homeless man, lying on some newspapers on a bench. We learned that he used to be a member of the middle class. He was upwardly mobile and successful, and had ambition. If he looks up high enough, if his distance vision is good enough, he might see Batman perching atop a mid-rise building. A gray and black-clad figure, a caped and cowled masterpiece of urban camouflage. There are still those who believe Batman to be a rumor, like alligators in the sewers. Batman's eyes sweep the ground far below, and he recalls an early lesson learned in his martial arts training. How, you see, is stronger than what you see. He is in a rust state, slowing his heart and lungs. He knows they will come soon, but even he can't really say how he knows this. The homeless man takes out his last crumpled cigarette. He remembers the time he used to smoke a Cuban cigar with a glass of wine every night before bed. At least I'm free now, he thinks. Someone says, Looking for a match, old man? 
The homeless man sits up, alarmed. A few feet away are three teenagers in leather jackets. The man is terrified. He's heard enough on the whisper stream to know what this gang wants. He tells them to leave him alone, but his voice comes out frightened and weak. The leader of the gang produces a flame, almost a foot high. Another boy withdraws a plastic squeeze bottle from his jacket. The sharp smell of gasoline fills the plaza. Bum-burning, they called it. The latest sadistic entertainment for the random violence youth gangs that stalked parts of Gotham. It was easy enough. You find a homeless person sleeping. You douse him with gasoline. Then you toss on a flaming match and watch the fun. I'm not a bum, the homeless man screamed in his mind. I'm a person. I have a name. But no sound came out. The boys began a practice routine of surrounding their victim. One tells another called Raj to douse him. The man looks into the eyes of one of them, searching for any shred of human compassion, but he finds none. He draws in one final breath when a piece of the night drops from the sky, landing softly on the ground. Batman tells them, It's all over. The leader tells Raj to get him. Raj squirts the gasoline on Batman. The leader then aims his blowtorch and pulls the trigger. Batman goes up in flames, but two rapid flaps of his cape extinguish the blaze as quickly as it had begun. Batman simply stands. Raj and the leader drop the blowtorch and squeeze bottle and raise their hands. But the third gang member, who the homeless man thinks of as the giggler, pulls a gun and shouts, Let's see you laugh this one off. And he pulls the trigger. Batman uses his cape to faint left as he moves right. Then he rolls and slams his boot into the giggler's chest. The gun goes off in the air. Even as Batman rolls smoothly to his feet, the giggler is on the ground, whimpering and clutching his ribs. Batman cuffs them, summons the police, then disappears into the night. My notes. Wow. 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 If you had any lingering doubts that this might be a lighthearted read, well, <laughs> what is the most heartbreaking is knowing that people do treat each other like monsters at times. It's not fictional, unfortunately. And we don't have a Batman to save us. We only have ourselves. And even in Gotham City, Batman's not there for everyone. He can't be. He's a single person. We know from the homeless man's knowledge of previous bum burnings having happened that, you know, Batman didn't save them all. I don't even want to know what things Vax, the author, has seen, either in Africa or in Manhattan. But I gotta say, this first bit of the book has really grabbed me in the way that it sets the tone for the story to come. Chapter 1, Scene 2 It was not enough. Maybe it would never be enough. Even as the Batmobile headed for home under cover of darkness, sliding smoothly through a series of switchbacks on a rarely used country road, the masked man at the wheel was bombarded with intrusive thoughts. Always the same theme. In the war between criminals and crusaders, only the criminals found a perpetually renewable source of troops. As the crusaders aged, they faced wave after wave of fresh combatants. It was like swimming toward the horizon, the Batman thought bitterly. But if you stop swimming, you drown. Unlike the Batmobile in the previous book, which took Batman down Blind Alley without warning him, this Batmobile reports on everything from the condition of the road ahead to any activity around the entrance to the Batcave. All clear. The Batmobile proceeds through a series of airlocks with several security checkpoints, and a robotic arm inserts a disc in the slot just behind the left front wheel. The screen inside reads, Analyzing Data Input. Please wait. Eventually, the robotic arm withdraws the disc, and a hydraulic lift raises the Batmobile. 
If any other vehicle tries to enter without gaining computer clearance, the hydraulic lift will perform quite another function. Inside the Batcave, the vehicle's canopy retracts, allowing Bruce to climb out. He starts toward the elevator that will take him out of the Batcave and into another life, but he changes his mind and goes instead to the giant mainframe computer nearby. My notes? Was he not going to change out of his Batsuit before heading up to Wayne Manor? Not only for the risk of someone seeing him, but also because it probably still reeks of gasoline, and I'm sure Alfred is going to love cleaning that. But I'm really enjoying the gadgetry and the technology we're starting to see here. Chapter 1, Scene 3. It's pretty short. Are you alright, Master Bruce? The speaker was a tall, dignified man dressed in an immaculate black suit. He was gently shaking the shoulder of the Batman, a look of deep concern on his patrician face. The Batman snapped awake. I'm fine, Alfred, he said. I was just doing some data analysis. I must have fallen asleep. You came in almost three hours ago, Alfred said. I marked the time when the indicator lights flashed upstairs. I wasn't worried at first. The computer that monitors your vital signs whenever you return showed no problems. But when I didn't hear from... It's okay, my old friend, the Batman said. I guess I must have gotten lost in my thoughts, that's all. The same thoughts? Alfred asked. Yes, the Batman said, tilting back his cowl as he spoke. But I'm fine. A couple of hours sleep, a quick shower and a shave, and I'll be right on time for the museum opening. Whatever you say, sir, Alfred replied, obviously dissatisfied with the response. The Batman opened his mouth as though to explain, but snapped it shut as Alfred turned his back and exited the cave. My notes? We don't often see Alfred summon, do we? He's usually just... there. <laughs> on that note, I'm a bit surprised he waited three hours before going down to check on Bruce. And we know Bruce doesn't sleep much, but when does Alfred sleep? Perhaps that's why it took him three hours to go down there. He needed a nap, too. Uh, so that's actually the end of chapter one. I thought a little something I might try for book number two will be giving a, a fun fact for every chapter. Fun fact about hydraulic machinery. Joseph Brahma patented the hydraulic press in 1795. And that's a lot older than I thought it would be. All right, uh, promo break. We'll be back. Hello, everyone. This is Pax, and I'm your host for I Read Movies, the podcast all about movie novelizations. Every month, I read a classic movie or TV novelization and get on here and discuss it with you. I talk about who wrote it. I talk about when it came out. I run down all the changes, additions, and oddities featured in the book compared to the movie or TV show that is novelized. I've covered such classic novelizations as the original Indiana Jones trilogy, Back to the Future, Gremlins, The Lost Boys, Predator, Jaws the Revenge, and Lethal Weapon. Do you want to know about the nuclear bomb strike in Back to the Future? Or how about all the voodoo in Jaws the Revenge, or the mini cannonball run that happens in Lethal Weapon. I talk about all these things each month on the I Read Movies podcast. I read these books so you don't have to. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google. Alright, welcome back folks. Chapter 2, Scene 1, begins on page 11. The Gotham Museum was celebrating a new wing by holding an exclusive viewing before it was open to the public. Attendance was by invitation only. Engraved invitation. The board of directors was sparing no expense, having long since realized that while museums may be intended for the public, 
It is always private capital that keeps them open. Bruce Wayne watches as a uniformed guard haughtily demands proof before letting a young couple inside. In preparation for his own entrance, Bruce retrieves his invitation that Alfred has remembered to tuck in his jacket for him, but the guard waves it away and bows respectfully. Everyone knows who you are, Mr. Wayne. Bruce thanks the guard by name, then walks past the purple velvet ropes into the new wing of the museum, which is to be called Now and Today. The first exhibit, The Greatness of Gotham, is already in place, showing a history of the city's development from fur-trading outposts to the thriving megalopolis it is today. Bruce is always welcome at such events. Wayne might be at the end of any alphabetized list, but it was the first name any fundraiser tried. Of the $4 million raised, Bruce had written a check for 500000 Bruce makes his way through the crowd, shaking hands, keeping the facade of polite billionaire in place. He can't help but notice the displays of Gotham. There is no hint of crime, homelessness, poverty, or disease. As someone calls, Bruce, oh Bruce, over here. It's Diana Dorchester, a woman who fancied herself royalty because her husband's money generated a constant flow of sycophants trailing in her wake. Dreading the encounter but seeing no way out of it, Bruce makes his way over to Dame Diane, as she is known locally. She goes on about how beautiful the new exhibit is, of how important it is to really make a difference. Meanwhile, Bruce wonders if his Batman is truly making a difference. Every time a criminal is incarcerated, a new felon rises up to take his place. A sarcastic female voice asks, You call this PR stunt making a difference? The speaker is an approaching young woman with white blonde hair and orange eyes, an albino woman. The two women get into a verbal sparring match, with Diana saying that civic pride in investors can make poverty go away, while the albino woman argues that poverty itself doesn't cause crime, people cause crime. Diana dismisses her with, Ugh, go find a soapbox, then moves on with her entourage. Bruce is relieved to see the back of Diana, at least until he realizes that the albino woman has rounded on him. Let's see what happens on the stage of... Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present... That Time Bruce Wayne Gets Schooled by a Social Worker. Do you believe what she said? That poverty is what causes crime? It's a contributor, but no rational person believes it's the sole cause. Where do you believe it comes from? Like I said, it comes from- People, I know. But don't you feel that's a bit simplistic? The real question is, which people, isn't it? Yes, that is the question. And even though we know the answer, we don't do anything about it. And the answer is... Children. I don't mean that children commit most of the crime, although they certainly commit an increasing amount of it. I mean that the maltreatment of children is the greatest single contributor to later criminal behavior. You mean like child abuse? That sort of thing? Yes, Mr. Wayne. I mean exactly that sort of thing. In fact, that's what I do. I don't understand. You apparently know my name, but I don't... My name is Deborah. Deborah Kane. I'm a caseworker with the Gotham Child Protective Services. How did you... Get in? It was easy enough. My old college roommate was invited. She told me about it. She wasn't going anyway, so I borrowed her invitation. No, I don't mean that. How did you get into your field, I guess? Believe it or not, it was a course I took in college. I wanted to be in the Peace Corps, but one of my professors showed us that children right here in Gotham, some of them anyway, are just as oppressed and mistreated as in any third world country. He sounds like a man of compassion. She is. 
Or at least she was. She was killed last year. Killed? How? A gunshot. That's all we know. It's so sad. She was walking home after classes when she found herself in the middle of a gunfight between two gangs. Gangs of kids. She was accidentally hit, an innocent bystander. I wonder if those kids know who they killed. I wonder if they care. I'd like to learn more about children and crime, that is. Could I call you sometime? I'll save you the travel. If this is some kind of... It's not a come on. The woman regards the man standing in front of her. The man who spent more on the suit he's wearing than she earns in a month. Without another word, she writes a telephone number on the back of her engraved invitation and hands it to him. The Batman's alter ego bowed gravely, as to a martial arts instructor. The albino woman returned his bow. Then she turned her back and walked away. My notes. Hmm. That was an interesting scene. I think we're going to learn about a lot of what the author Vax learns through her as a character. Um, I also noticed, of course, like I'm sure any Batman fan does, that her surname is Kane. So I'm sure that's a nod toward Bob Kane, one of the creators of Batman. So yeah, a really interesting little scene there. Deborah Kane came off a little aggressive at first, which I can understand. She's kind of in the in the gutters with the people and, and sees the worst of Gotham. And here she is seeing Gotham's elite pretending to, to care, I guess, that struck a nerve with her. But also the way she reacted shut down any possibility of dialogue between her and Diana. Not that I think Diana would be particularly receptive to any conversation, but, you know, things smooth out quickly between Deborah and Bruce, and they are able to open a dialogue. It'll be interesting to see how this relationship develops and what Deborah can teach him about the treatment of children in Gotham and how that might be a, a way of crime prevention rather than vigilantism of crimes that already happen. Fun fact for Chapter 2. There are two principal types of albinism. Oculocutaneous, affecting the eyes, skin, and hair, and ocular, affecting the eyes only. Deborah Kane's type of albinism is oculocutaneous. Gesundheit. That will wrap it up for the author introduction and chapter one and chapter two of Batman, The Ultimate Evil. Next episode, we'll discuss chapters three and four. As always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, funny memes, whatever, um, feel free to reach out to me at batmanbooks underscore DKP on Twitter or darknightpros at gmail.com. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. <laughs>